Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast, Episode 2. Today, of course, we'll talk about music, uh, first concerts, bands that freaked us out, recovery, spirituality, and bands that are uh, a little bit less known. My friend Richie Hume is here. I produced one of Richie's uh, songs and mixed it here at Peter Klepp Productions, and we have become good friends. So here we go. Let's start off with uh, where you came from. So I moved down from Pennsylvania about five, six years ago and swore off playing music. Really? As a vocation. Yeah. I You're was done, huh? I was in a Northeast traveling cover band and uh, we did 240, 230 shows a year, gigs. Wow. Up and down the Northeast. And there were some cool venues. I mean, we played to a lot of people, you know. Right. Um, it was hard work, and my mom got sick with pancreatic cancer, so I moved down here to be with her. And after that, four years of being in that band, traveling nonstop, partying like what we perceived to be rock stars for that long and hard, I uh, I was just like, I'm done, man. And then, of course, as a musician, it always finds you again. Yeah, you know. Sure. You just can't swear off. Yep. I did a podcast with Ronnie, and he said the same thing. We we were both saying, like, you know, we just feel like we're just kind of done sometimes. And then all of a sudden, something happens where we're like, okay, I want to do it again. I can't help it. That's it. Yeah. Genuinely, I feel kind of slow sometimes because I'm just like, I can't believe that I'm still doing this. <laughs> so what got you into music to begin with? I've been obsessed since I was five years old since I can remember since right. I could formulate memories I remember being at like pre-k and there was a mic and I would sing we will rock you and nice mic. yeah because my uh <laughs> my the first record I listened to was Queen's Greatest Hits okay it just I, I don't know my, my dad had a CD collection there was bad Michael Jackson in there there was Stevie Ray there was Queen um you know I think there was maybe some country stuff in there but Queen hit me in the chest first, you know? So I, I I just remember being so young and singing that, and then I found Kiss. Oh, man. You went down the Kiss road? That's every young man's. I remember Kiss Alive 2 was the first one I heard. But I think Kiss Alive 1 is better. So Kiss Alive 1, I had my dad's CD collection or whatever that I listened to. Kiss Alive 1 was the first record I bought. My grandma got us the state quarter folds with all the state quarters in it. If you had all the state oh, really? quarters, I think it was like 12 bucks. Oh, cool. So I... I like a collector thing. Yep. So I, I took mine and I stole my sister's and I went to <laughs> Sam Goody and I dumped all the quarters on, oh, the, no. on the front desk and bought Kiss Alive because I was so intrigued yeah. by by the... Cold Gin. And, oh, I mean, it was so a good, good record for, for that. I mean, I, I personally think... They were okay back then, and then they just got 
cheese corny. I can't deal. Super but back cheesy. then it was okay. Yeah, I mean, they had songs like She, which is like, I think, one of the best rock riffs of all time. So I have a story about Queen. My dad used to go to Japan and China, and he would bring home these records for us because he could get them really cheap. And one Christmas, I asked him to get me that record and Black Sabbath Paranoid. And so, you know, he must have had his assistant or something get them and send them and possibly wrap them because Christmas morning came around and I opened the Paranoid record, which has rat uh, salad and electric funeral. And then the cover of News of the World is like dead people, you know, and he, they were like, Peter, what is this? And I'm thinking, you bought this. You must have seen the cover, you know, so I thought that was a funny story. Similar thing. Um, after I bought Kiss, I got the bug, and I think Napster had come out. And my how old, old are you? I was born in '92. Oh my gosh, I'm old. Time goes by fast, man. Yeah, I remember the Napster thing, Metallica, and all that. So I think maybe my older sisters were just privy to it. My parents heard about it. They were like, "No." We'll take you to the record store, and if you really love a CD, every now and again, we'll buy you a CD. And so we had this place called School Kids Records. And so we went in, and I had heard Paradise City recently for the first time. So I did a little research somehow and found out that Appetite for Destruction was the album. And I went to buy it, and there was a parental advisory sticker on it. And they said no? So my mom looked at it and she's like, I don't think so. I don't want to be a bad mom. There's a parental advisory sticker on this. She didn't really know Guns N' Roses. Right. And the owner of the record store was like, oh, that's just a formality that's on there. It's it's really, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. It's not that bad. He should, he should have this record. And so because of that guy, I was able to get Appetite for Destruction. Nice. And, and that was what? 1987. So... I mean, you, it was out five years before you were even, you said you yeah, were born. This was probably 98. So it'd probably been oh out for gosh. 13, 14 years at that point. I graduated high school the year that came out. That's insane. That's awesome. I wonder what it would have been like. Kind of. That. I wonder what it would have been like hearing that for the first time when it came out though. I remember my friend Aaron pulled up to i don't know where i was working but he pulls up and he goes pete get out here i was like what's up you have to hear this record and he played me welcome to the jungle which was like oh yeah this is very different you know and then of course the record took on the life that it did you know and rocket queen so good oh dude you know obviously um the hits but it's a deep deep record so did you have a musical family? Did your parents play music? Did they love music? They loved music. I think they tuned out by the time of that, like Guns N' Roses and stuff, because they were in kids mode at that point. But mm. they did love music in the 70s. Did they play it in the house? Like when you guys were hanging out? Not really. They were very, very surprised that I found this stuff. Right. And you said you had an older sister earlier, right? Yeah, the, I had the... two older sisters. Okay, and they were probably where you heard most of your music, is no, my guess. No, my, my cool Uncle Anthony oh, and, and Uncle Bill. Nice. They were the dudes that we would go on family trips, and they had they would play Guns N' Roses and Allman Brothers, and 
rock and roll, and that's where I think I kind of got a deeper education on it, and right. then I went and explored. Did any music at that age when you were younger, did anything like, was so like, what is that, that it almost scared you is not really the right word, but it was like, put you in a place of like, this is, this is deep. It's so funny, because I was just thinking about that. I can remember being in the grocery store, and I can't remember if it was Manson or Slipknot. Right. Like, and who are these people? Who are these people? Kiss was whatever. You'd see them all around. They, yeah. were, they were infiltrated pop culture. Been around forever, though, by that time. Yeah. These guys were on the fringe, man. Yeah. And I saw, like, I saw the cover with them on it, and I knew that, my, I, knew that I wasn't supposed to listen to that stuff. <laughs> And right. so what did I want to do? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so for you, it was like the slipknot masks and the gore. For me, it was back then, you know, um, Iron Maiden's number of the beast and Ozzy's, um, speak of the devil. My yep. mom was like, who is that person? And what is he doing? And what is in his mouth? I'm like, it's Ozzy, man. You know, yeah, that is awful. You know, like they yep. couldn't understand. It was just so creepy to them. Yeah. I remember being 12 or 13 and discovering Pantera and my dad goes, it just sounds like they're angry at the world. My wife, Jessica loves that band. I that do was, too. Cause she's 41. How old are you? I'm 31. Oh, so there is a 10-year gap, but she, you know, for her, the 90s, that she was young for that. Yeah. Yeah, and Pantera was late 90s, early 1000s. I mean, well, and early 90s, but they, I feel like they really infiltrated, like, later in the 90s. Okay, so now I'm going to go off of this age gap thing, because my very first concert was Sammy Hagar. What was yours? Kiss. But what year? Which... The reunion tour. Oh my now, gosh. What record was that? The on? one that they did, the actual Peter Chris, Ace Freely, the, the, the legit guys. reunion, right. 2001 or 2000, I can't remember. Psycho Circus was the album. Goodness. So, what about the best concert you've ever been to? Hands down, without a question, 2007 or 8, I forget. Stone Temple Pilots. Oh, wow. What record would that be? Uh, Four? Just them getting back together. Okay. After like a few years. So it was even after Tiny Music. So first record was 92, uh, Tiny Music was what, 98 or something? Yeah, and then the, the Shangri-La was their last oh, record, yeah. I, I think. With Well, they had like a one-off at, like after the dust all settled, but their first five records were like their big records. And Shangri-La had that actress in it Sarah, Mc, Sarah Michelle Geller. that was number four but okay I, they were both right around the same they were kind of a one-two punch gotcha you know they were cool purple was my jam Scott Weiland is the best front man I've ever seen so polarizing right. so fun to watch he didn't know what he was going to do next hmm. and I remember seeing them and he walked out in like a white snakeskin suit or something like that. And my mom looked at me and goes, that's a freaking rock star. It's a shame because, you know, like Kurt killing himself, Wyland, Lane Staley, uh, now Chris Cornell, and uh, 
Chester, you know, like what an awful way to gain that kind of legend status. You know what I mean? Chris Cornell, though, for me was, I, I didn't know that he was that troubled. And I was, I was shocked when I heard that. He made it so far, you know what I mean? Through all the stages of being a rock star, all, you know, in and out of, of depression and use and whatnot, and you made it, you know what I mean? And then boom. Well, that malady is, I think, merciless, you know, and uh, it knows no age, it knows no level of success, it knows no limitations, and that if you don't stay after your mental and spiritual well-being, it will come back and it'll get you, especially when you're that plagued by it, I think, you know. So what made you become a singer? Like, what drove you to do that position? I wasn't very good at sports at a very young age. I just fell in love with music like we talked about. We were at some sports bar or something early in the night, and there was karaoke. And I just said, I got up and tried it as a goof, and it just, I had a natural ability to somewhat sing in key. Mm-hmm. And uh, not well by any means, but I was able to just like sing in key. And I just leaned into it and people were laughing that this five or six year old was singing Led Zeppelin. Right. And uh, it just lit my brain on fire. And that was it. And I've been singing ever since I was like five, six years old. So it was vocals first and then you picked up a guitar? Vocals first, picked up a guitar begrudgingly. Why begrudgingly? Well, just it, it wasn't. You needed as, it to sing to, kind of thing? Needed it to sing to. It never came as natural to me, still to this day. Guitar right. is just not as natural to me, but exactly what you said. You need uh, you need it to sing to. And I have fallen in love with it since, but it's a, it's a love hate relationship. Yes. And obviously, me being known for guitar, uh, and, you know, as a kid, I always talk about how infatuated I was. Like, that's all I wanted to do. Now I'm inspired by the, like, open D tunings to where, you know, you've got strings ringing. Before it was like you pick up a guitar and you rock. Yep. Now I don't want any of that. I mean, you know, I still like it, but I, I, want, I want clean, open acoustic, you know. Yeah, I think that... Um exactly what you said you pick up the guitar and you rock and you fall and we all kind of fell in love with that low-hanging fruit of that primal rock and roll riff driven stuff but at a certain point you've heard it so many times while i still love and have an appreciation for it i'm i gravitate toward more of uh complete productions rather than just like riff driven rock you know yes the layering and stuff different instruments, layering, melodies, where guitar solos and riffs and um, loud drums used to kind of grasp me. But where, where that used to be the thing, it's like hooks, melodies, production value, things, those intangible things. You know? Correct. Well, on that subject, let's now go to what brought the two of us to that place of, wait a minute, you like that band? You've heard of that band? So a couple of those bands were Celebrity, Augustana, Palo Alto, right? Yep. What were the other ones that we were going back and um, So Celebrity ones, Keen. Keen. That's Keen. a no-brainer. 
Coldplay, I think we can well, both agree. No, yeah, of course. That's that's they were but the, the Mac Daddy. Ones. What was the one I showed you? Kent. Kent. Nobody knows who that band is. I mean, people obviously do, but not very many people that I talk to have any idea. And that one record in particular, I don't remember the name of it. Agnesta Hill. The, I think it was the only English-speaking record that they, they no, had. No, no, no. They got a couple. Because I remember grabbing the next one. Well, it was the big English-speaking record that they had. Because most, uh, most of the records were in, I'm going to, is it Swedish? Them? I don't know. I think they're English. Mm. No? They're, they're in a, a different language. So Isola. That's the one for me. Isola? I have yes. to listen to that one. Oh, man, dude. Unprofessional, Celsius, Bianca. All of that is absolutely kick butt. That is my favorite. That is the one for me. It's production, man. At the time, what stood out to me was how great the bass sounded, of all things. Super round, and you were able to pick out the bass part like it's the main guitar part. Yeah, I, I found myself listening to the bass. On that, the band Copeland yeah, is, my, is my all-time, like in the past 10 years. Is, they are the blushing. That record is just sick. But the bass player in that band is a big part of why I like them. He makes the pick not sound rock like... Just the choices of all of their instruments, everything about what they do, the choices for me are perfect. Well, as you, above, so below. If you, that song is my top five, uh, top ten at least ever. It's along the vein of Kent and um, and uh, Keen and all those bands, those Brit pop sort of polished mm -hmm. bands. But something I notice about that type of music is. The guitar parts are very textured, and the bass and the drums create this really clean canvas for uh, for the singer to write hooks and melodies over, and the guitar player to add textures, volume swells, cool harmonic parts, things that my favorite rock guitar players wouldn't normally do. I think the other one was definitely Augustana. Yeah, they had a they had like a quick glimmer in the early thousands. There's so much to choose from. It just gets lost in the shuffle. Okay, so let's talk about um, your recovery. Okay. How, many, how long do you have? Almost three years. Almost three years. So everybody always talks about the first year. Was that hard for you or were you just done? I was done. I fully embraced recovery. It was when, you, when I hit that year mark i did get a bit of an itch mm. but fortunately god drove me back into doing what i was supposed to do i met my wife around that time and she is what's your wife's name jamie and she and you just recently got married yeah last weekend last weekend. hello congratulations thanks man yeah it's awesome um she's one of us in recovery and How long is she has 13 years? Almost said? 13 years. That's pretty epic. And she is adamant about doing the things that we're all supposed to do. Well, like meetings? Meetings, meditation, prayer. Does she go through out. the steps over and over again? Um, she does all the things that we're supposed to do to not go back out there. And I 
heed her example. And I did right. when I met her. She kind of told me, she said, you're flirting with dangerous territory. You think you got this thing. And that's the moment that you will go back out. And yeah. she was right. And I was flirting with disaster for sure. Did you go to rehab? I did not. I had a really good friend um, and a guy I work with on music. I told him I was done. I called him drunk. I said, I'm going to rehab. He goes, you don't need to go to rehab. And he said, now that's something for some people, but he's like, I know that you got the tenacity to go into meetings and just buck this thing yourself. Sure. And so I just started going to meetings, you know? Yeah. I went to rehab. I was um, done. I said, I'm going in. Called my friend that owned the treatment center in Kirkland called Milam. And 28 days I went in. And they shut you down. They break you down and build you back up. And I was full on. I was in. I went to the classes. I did the studies. I wanted to see the, I listened to the speakers. You know, I did not screw around. I wanted this. And that was 22 years ago. That's awesome. And you know what? I wouldn't have minded going, actually, now that I think about it. Because you get that really strong base, I think, by doing that. You know, but the meetings did work for me and I, and I was pretty diligent about them as well. And it's something that I want to maintain till the day I die. Good for you because I went obviously, you know, for a while after treatment, um, but I didn't go. I felt like it was, for me, it was more like I was being influenced. I was being inspired to go drink. I was being reminded you know, other than obviously the people telling their horror stories, but it, I felt like it was more drama, more temptation, just more of just the yucky of that world. Like I was like, I don't want that world anymore. Why am I going and putting myself in the middle of the lion's den, if you will? Which I can understand. For me, drinking was a remedy for my brain which is troubled what are you like depressive i'm not depressive but i definitely had my bouts of anxiety mainly oh, growing yeah, up sure. super bad anxiety and i i suffered from something called pure obsession ocd which is just terrible is this a cause roots from childhood family or just that's just your makeup just my i think it's just my makeup honestly right. since i was a really young so the premise of pure obsession ocd is that you obsess on abhorrent thoughts that you have for example let's say you're driving down the road you're really really tired and you kind of have that thought where you're like I could just drive off the road right now. I could just right. turn the wheel and drive off the road right now. Now amplify that about every terrible situation you could and add in that you're going to obsess over it again and again and again and again. And you're going to have these rituals like you might sit on your left hand while you're driving so that you don't feel tempted to do it. And um, it's just a loop of these obsessive thoughts it's called pure obsession and I, that's something i suffered from and i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy and um i drank heavily to deal with that so um, what one of those classic i'm gonna block it out yeah i just had to and you know i went to some psychologists and stuff like that to try and learn to cope with it but um yeah i drank to shut that off you know and eventually it didn't serve me anymore yeah so did you do the steps? 
Yeah. I've done all 12 and I would like to do them again. Are you a sponsor? I'm not a sponsor just because where I've been going to meetings, um, there's mostly older people with more time with more time. And I'm just, I would love to find one. Yeah, I get that. Uh, you know, again, the meetings, you know, you, there's always just some loud mouth that wants to brag about how much dope he smoked and how much heroin he shot. And I was crazier than you. And I'm thinking to myself, you're bragging about that. It's all part of it, though, for me, because it teaches you how to be your own person and be solid in your own thoughts and in who you are and, uh, you know, to not judge yeah. them. But like speaker meetings, I love them. Those yeah. I used to love. There was like Monday night speaker meeting and those guys were good. Girls, guys, girls, whoever it was, was usually very good at telling the story. And I would just, it was like I was a little kid at story time. I loved it. Yep. So the steps, the fifth step, fourth, fifth. Those are hard. They were hard. I've done it a, a few times. Yeah. You know? So one thing about my sobriety that I've noticed now is that when I first got sober, it was 2001, and the band got back together in 2006, and I was sober and then it split up again in 15. But that run, I was sober, but I don't think that I'd really become maybe a better person. You know, I was an improvement, but I don't think I really was sober, sober. Whereas once I left the band in 15, all this time, I think maybe having kids made a difference, but I've reflected and processed it much better to where I feel like now I'm just don't drink and I'm living a normal, healthy life. You know, I, you can do a fifth step and go through the process and do all those things and <clears throat> turn it over to God and all that. And I did that. And I feel like when I did that, it really released a lot of stuff for me. It was healthy, and I felt like that's really what the fifth step is about. Yeah, for me, it was an apology to my family for being the guy that terrified them. They, yeah. they had to know that I was out on the road in the middle of some state in a packed van full of dudes that were drinking as heavy as me at 3 a.m. unloading out of a bar blacked out drunk out of my mind and they had to know that every night going to bed yes and it, that you is put your parents terrifying. through the the ringer of torture i mean i my parents i must have you know because i was young 15 they kicked me out of the house and i was living at somebody else's house going for it and you know they must have been like i can only imagine now that i have kids like what are they doing are they okay you know, like you just, they probably desperately wanted to reach out and call and just make sure I was okay. But they were like, no, you know, you're gonna have to learn. And I feel that way about, you know, my kids. Like there's certain things that you just can't step in. They're gonna have to suffer something in yep. order to really understand the consequences of life. You know, I don't think my kids are quite there yet. They're only 10 and five, but... You know, it's hard not to rescue all the time. Yep. You don't want to bubble wrap the world. 
No, because it's going to be that much more, not terrifying, but it's going to be shocking. And sometimes bubble wrap in the world creates that very behavior that we're talking about later on. Maybe. <laughs> it did for me. Really? My, uh, my mom was the best mom ever. I loved her to death. But man, she tried to, she tried to nerf the world. And uh, <laughs> once I got out, I didn't want that. And I, wanted, I went the other way with it. And I wanted this reckless. What, like a rebellion? Yeah, I wanted a reckless, crazy life, you know. And uh, I created that for myself. With that being said... Even in my times of being crazy and partying in the middle of some state, like I talked, I have zero regrets. Zero. I have zero I have regrets. A lot of regrets. Really? Oh yeah. I and mean, I struggle with those regrets to this day. There's some things I really wish didn't happen as a result of my drinking, for sure, no right. doubt. So I guess that would be a regret. But I'm talking about, I think, more in the in the macro decisions I made in life, not the micro. There's a lot of regrets in the micro decisions I made, but the macro decisions, I I think when I really play the tape through, if if I'd have zigged when I should have zagged, it wouldn't have worked out the way it should have for me. Yeah. uh, Understandable, you know, but alcohol and drugs, you know, if I could have just done the whole thing without it, I wonder what would, where I'd be now. Or, or, you know, instead of partying, I could have been learning how to be a producer and engineer, which is what I love now, then, and I could be way further because, you know what I mean? And it just takes a while to where you can get to, it's your thing, your sound, you know, and I could have been so much further. So things like that. Yeah, but never would have happened. You know what I mean? Like my brain was not in a place where I would have been diligent about the right things I had to learn the hard way and that's just that's just who I am I think you know and I think that I could think to myself I wish I didn't um, go down that road and I the time I could have spent but it just never would have happened yeah it's you know hindsight's 2020 yeah uh, you know but I mean I don't I'm not like I, I got to live you know a fairy tale dream. So I'm not disappointed, but I certainly think that a few regrets were being in that state of mind where I think had I been more mature, had all of us been more mature in the band, I think maybe we could have been closer for longer because it came, it was in the beginning, you know, it was the three musketeers kind of mentality. We're all in this and we're dependent on each other and I look to you for this I look to you for that and then you you become successful and then it's kind of like you start doing your own things and you maybe drift apart but for me personally had I not been drinking you know I I would have been more present I think yeah I think that that's the real regret if there is one right it's just like having missed amazing moments in your life that you were physically there but you were not mentally and emotionally there and I think that that is a tune we can all dance to and, and regretting things, you know, now I'm present and I'm, I'm not a slave to something that's taking me out of my beautiful life that I have. Yeah. You know, so are you guys going to have kids? I would love to, I hope, I hope it happens. If it's in God's plans, we are, we're going to try for it for sure. So you've said that a couple of times, you're, you, you give your life over. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I find that when I live in the spirit, uh, it's much better. <laughs> so much better. Yeah. I've gone in and out of, you know, cause I was raised in a f Christian home, but it was, you know, they were pretty into it and, and not domineering, not negative, but it was pretty present, you know, and I think it was like, well, you know, I'm being pushed into doing this, so I'm going to rebel, but I never really ran away, but I certainly went in and out of, of, you know, does God really exist? Oh yeah. Same exact thing. I have thing. friends that are just dear friends and they, they just don't want to believe and that's okay. But I don't know. I think you'll never know. I had a friend that was a Satan worshiper. He was into the devil and then he became a Christian and was full on that. He was the type that was all in, right? But the one thing he said one time, he said, Pete, when you're dead, you will know all things because it's either there or it's not. Right. And I think it's hard to explain to a person that hasn't experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit to explain the beauty of it. You know, I don't know. I can only just go off of faith and believe and Christianity and religion gets a bad name and it's thrown under the bus and I get it because, you know, you've got these groups of, of churches and Christians that just persecute people. And I don't, that Jesus was not of persecution. No. He was of forgiveness and I accept you for who you are. People can't um, seem to separate the institutions from the, from the, from the God. You know? I think what people rebel against the most is the God of the Old Testament. Right. Whereas when Jesus came, if, if that's where you are and that's what you believe, then it was, okay, this isn't working. So I'm going to give you the theory of forgiveness because if the devil exists and God exists and Jesus was real as far as the son of God, then even in regular life, if the devil exists, you can always beat the devil through forgiveness because there's nothing he can do to you if you forgive. Right. Because he's always trying to impact your life in a negative way or pull you away or, you know, create resentments or, you know, guilt. Right. And if you say, no, I'm... I, I forgive myself and I forgive you, then all that goes away. Right. He loses. And that's, I think, what Jesus was. What you're talking about, I think, is proving what I know to be true or what I've learned to be true, that by worshiping God and Jesus or really whatever religion you believe in, that's hopefully something positive, um, will require you to dive into these things and think about these things and your life will only be better. So I appreciate you coming in and I have a, a, a favor to ask. Mind if I play a bit of your song on the way out? Not at all. Let's do Smile. it. Smile. Heck yeah. All right. 
Everybody, thank you for being here for the episode two with Richie Hume. I hope you enjoyed it. And here's a bit of his song, Smile, that I mixed and produced here at Peter Club Productions. Smile upon your face